This is the Monday, January 30th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, we mark the anniversary of the first Baseball Hall of Fame class, 1936. In that year, Ty Cobb earned 222 votes, making him the first member of the Hall, with only four ballots failing to include his name. That's more votes than Babe Ruth that same year, and a percentage of ballots that stood unsurpassed for over 50 years. One of my earliest interviews in the summer of 2015 featured Cobb, and Charles Learson's biography, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. I frequently cast back to that book for the main points of wisdom and insight that really stuck with me after I read the book and looked at what's an exceptional work of journalism. Mr. Learson scratched the myth of Cobb as a belligerent, dim-witted racist and dirty player, and found the real man to be, well, the opposite of all of those things. Sure, Cobb fought. Men of all colors. In an era when men settled most things with their fists. But Cobb also said men formerly segregated in the Negro Leagues should be welcomed into Major League Baseball wholeheartedly. And men on other teams, or even teammates who didn't like him, universally said that Cobb played the game clean. He wasn't dirty or a spiker. In fact, Cobb even sought to have the league require the dulling of spikes. So how has the baseball community and the fans reacted to the true story in the last year and a half since we last chatted with Charles Learson? How has this author fared in literally rewriting history? Well, we'll follow up today and find out before re-airing our chat so you don't have to scroll back in the archives. Charles Learson is not just a sports fan, but a journalist trained in following the facts wherever they lead him. You've seen his work everywhere from Sports Illustrated and Esquire to the New York Times Magazine and People. He's also been an editor at SI, US Weekly, and Newsweek. You can find him at Charles Learson on Twitter or at charleslearson.com. And that last name, by the way, is L-E-E-R-H-S-E-N. Okay, now that we've reminded you who Charles Learson is, Let's meet him and dig into the last year and a half of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. I'm joined on the line by Charles Learson, author of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. Thank you for making time for this return visit to the History Author Show. My pleasure, Dean. It's just after a year and a half since Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, hit shelves. The book has racked up a bunch of accolades in that time, and it has armed people with facts to 
battle hack sports writer Al Stumps lies about Cobb, which were then put on the silver screen with that Tommy Lee Jones movie. Few journalists will have this experience you had of rewriting history and redeeming an icon of Cobb's stature. So I wanted to have you back to ask, what has that ride been like for you since we last spoke? Well, it's been exhilarating in some ways bumpy, especially in the beginning, I got a lot of resistance to the idea that the Ty Cobb of myth wasn't the Ty Cobb of reality. And I still get some. I still will post something on the book's Facebook page, an excerpt from the book, and people will comment, oh yeah, but he was a terrible human being, or oh yeah, but he had, you know, he spiked everyone, or oh yeah, but he was a racist. So those people are still out there. I guess that's good. It keeps me in business. You know, it's like (laughs) the Pope wouldn't be in business if there were no sinners. So uh, it keeps me in business in the same kind of way, maybe. When we last spoke about Ty Cobb and Terrible Beauty, that's something that you brought up was about this idea of people on social media ripping him. And who can you not have in the Hall of Fame if you're going to let a guy in who murdered three people, which wasn't true? I wondered, having retweeted you a bunch of times and tweeted out every time Ty Cobb a Terrible Beauty won a new accolade or was named as a book you must read, for instance, by AOL Sports, I wonder how people have taken the book upon themselves, taken the truth here, and gone and decided to push for it on social media. You'd mentioned that that was something people might want to do, just gently, you know, maybe a case-by-case basis. Have you had readers using the book to evangelize for Cobb and fighting that myth? Well, it's been very gratifying. Being, I have That has happened, and happened quite a bit. In the beginning, when the book first came out, people would post something, and if anyone was going to weigh in and disagree it would be me, you know, <laughs> and I try to resist that <laughs> yeah. urge because I thought, you know, if you'd say, well, I hate Ernest Hemingway's latest novel and then Hemingway wrote you a letter, this actually probably happened a few times, wouldn't be too classy. So I, I, I laid back and just let the lies hang out there in, for a while. But now, more often than not, actually, people will come to Ty Cobb's defense if someone just says something that's completely uninformed, just relying on the, on the same tired old myths, and they will cite my book as an example, very often. And when they don't, I think that's good, too, because it it just tells me that the truth is kind of seeping in there and becoming part of the fabric of the baseball uh, kind of landscape. You know, I I never set out to be a crusader for Ty Cobb, a redeemer of Ty Cobb, or even a lawyer for Ty Cobb. I set out actually to reinforce the old myths about him. Uh, When I started out, I thought he was a horrible human being, and I would just find fresh examples of, of him being horrible, and I'd combine those with the already known examples, and, and we'd have a book. I spent four years researching the book, but in the first 10 minutes of my research, I started to find things that uh, contradicted the myths and surprised me, and I started to realize I was going to have to reevaluate the Ty Cobb myths, and you know, I should have known that, and there were people like ahead of me on this. There were people who, who knew that Ty Cobb could not have been as bad a guy, could not have been the monster that so many people said he was, just because no one can be so monstrous or so one-dimensional even. The Ty Cobb of myth is a, like a cartoon character. He's, he's one-dimensional. He's always in the same mood whenever we check in on him, <laughs> kind of like the Roadrunner or you know, Wile E. Coyote or Daffy Duck. or something. He's always in the same place emotionally, and no one is like that. He lived over 70 years and 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's going to be in different places at least. So the myth couldn't have been true. But what people didn't have, perhaps, until I came 
along and spent four years pulling together some evidence. They didn't have a counter narrative. They didn't have something to drop in there after they came to the realization that no one is like the Thai Cobham, that there's no human being like that. But they didn't have a story to drop in otherwise. And what I was fortunate enough to have the chance to do was to find the story of the real Thai Cobham. I didn't do anything extraordinary as a journalist. I just went back into the textbook things, went back to the primary sources. It just so happened that no one had done that before or consistently or to any extent. And I went back and I, I read the old newspapers and I read the letters that are out there on the, in the marketplace and in museums. And I saw someone emerging. He was not the Ty Cobb of myth. He was not the opposite of the Ty Cobb of myth. He wasn't a plaster saint. But he was a third person, a whole different human being that had some of the traits from the myth, but actually was a whole different person. So that was a thrilling discovery. It was like sort of brushing away the extra and finding the real figure underneath. Yeah, I said in the intro that you scratched the surface of this myth and you found the guy underneath these things. Many of them he was, though, the opposite of. And when we first spoke, the interview we're going to flash back to here after we finished chatting you said it took you maybe a half a day of reading these things to learn. And you made another comment. You said, I think a bad history book is one that just quotes other history books. Nowadays, I think it's a great thing about how readily available research is. You're able to sit at your computer and maybe lose a couple hours with a cup of coffee looking at old newspaper stories of Ty Cobb, and you're able to see and compare and contrast in a way that would have been really hard before, you can bring up something like his unanimous selection to the Hall of Fame 80 years ago, you know, and say, well, let me look at this. Let me look at the numbers. And you have actually stories that back up that number and explain why he gets this 98.2% of a vote. What did that tell you? What does it tell us about him as a player that debunks that part of the myth that everybody hated him? Well, one thing it tells us, and we should remember about the myths, virtually all of them started in earnest after he died in 1961. And when he died, uh, he, he wasn't the monstrous figure to the world that he, he is still in some people's mind today. But the myth of the, of the Hall of Fame in particular tells us there's a lesson in there, and that lesson is simply that he was liked and admired and appreciated by the men, and they were all men in those days, who wrote baseball by the baseball writers. And one of the myths, of course, is that he was terrible and all the writers hated him and he didn't get along with anyone. All of his teammates hated him. Uh, It was another myth, too, that turned out not to be true. But he's not going to get 98.2% or whatever it is, over 98% of the vote and more than anyone else, more than Ruth, more than Honus Wagner, more than Christy Mathieson, all those greats that were up in that first class. He got more than anyone shows that he was liked and appreciated. You know, he was conventional with sports writers in the sense that he talked to them, he palled around with them, he went to dinner with them, he had them over his house, he invited them down to Georgia, they stayed over his house in the off-season, he palled around with them during the season, even when he was an older guy, when he was in his 60s and 70s, he invited them out to California where he lived and sports writers stayed with him. That was not all that unusual in those days. So he was a usual, regular guy in the good sense in that way. You know, another way that Cobb's being not universally hated shows up is in the famous incident of his, uh, when he went into the stands and uh, beat up the disabled man who lost several fingers in a printing accident, a printing press accident. 
That's true that that happened, and it's a lot on his record, and it should not have happened. But there's a lot that goes into explaining that, how the man harassed him for a year before that happened, how Cobb tried to get an usher to go up and quiet the man down, how the year before he'd called up to him in the stands and said, look, I'm just trying to make a living down here. Could you get off my back? And the man still kept it up. The bottom line is Cobb should not have gone in the stands and beat him up. But even though fan harassment was a big issue and a big topic in 1912 when that happened. But putting that aside, Cobb was suspended for going into the stands and beating him up by Ben Johnson, the president of the American League. And what happened the next day is Cobb's teammates went on strike to support him. It was the first time baseball players had gone on strike. Huh. They were so outraged because, as I just said, that the topic was in the air. People were tired of getting harassed by fans, the players. And for Cobb to be punished for finally meeting out justice, even on a disabled man, outraged his teammates. If they all hated him, would they have done that? They lost money in the process. Every game they didn't play, they were fined. So there's examples along the way which directly contradict the myth of Ty Cobb being a universally hated, a miserable, sad human being. This leads nicely to my next question, which is about the term fake news that has entered the lexicon since the election of 2016. And it grew to encompass everything from parodies mistaken for fact to outright lies and distorted journalism with a partisan bent. Do you think Al Stump's misreporting on Cobb fits the definition as you understand it? And I ask because I think it's a great example, and it's also a chance to share this story with Cobb, sort of get it into the popular news of the day. Yeah, well, fake news has been stretched, that term, so it can mean anything. I mean, I guess you could call it fake news. Why not? It was fake, and it didn't make news. Perhaps it also can be understood as good old-fashioned sensationalism and yellow journalism, and that's what uh, someone like Al Stump and what Al Stump in particular trafficked in. He was an old-school guy who made stuff up. He got in trouble. He'd gotten in trouble quite a few times before he ran into Ty Cobb for making up quotes. I found clips in which Juan Marichal and Don Drysdale, when he did newspaper stories about them, saying, I never said that. You know, and it would always be something controversial that made a headline for a day or two. And I still found at least one or two of his contemporaries, Al Stumps, who are still alive. Melvin Derslag, the old AP writer, told me that Stump was barred from several national magazines for making things up, things that didn't even reach the state of print because they didn't pass through the fact-checking departments, the tough fact-checking departments that magazines had in that time. You know, Stump later went on, after he made up things about Cobb that grew into the Cobb myth that was we know it today, he later went on to create counterfeit Cobb memorabilia and forge Cobb's autograph. Uh, you got to be careful if you buy a Ty Cobb autograph on the market because the leading authority on Cobb's autograph told me that most of the autographs that are out there, the Cobb autographs, were actually signed by Al Stump. So you have to be very careful about that. So Stump was just making up things for a buck. The original story that started this myth, the start of the myths was ran in a magazine, ironically, called True Magazine. And it was a, one of those kind of barbershop magazines of the day. But print was a lot more important in those days. And to say something sensational about someone who was a baseball player was unknown. This was nine years before Jim Bouton's Ball Four. No one said those kind of things about baseball players. And the sports writers of the day, and there were a lot of them because there were so many more newspapers 
1961 than there are today. The sports writers actually inadvertently helped propagate the myth because they leapt to Cobb's defense and they wrote columns and stories about the scurrilous and untrue article in True Magazine. In the process, they disseminated the information, the very lurid, sensational, and it turned out to be very appealing information, uh, even though it was untrue, that was in the article. So that was the start of it. And so I guess some people say that we've had a president elected because of fake news. The president himself now, as we're sitting here, is always using the term fake news. But it certainly was something that worked well for Al Stump. He made a lot of money off it, and it worked very poorly for Cobb because Cobb's legacy was tarnished. We thought permanently, perhaps maybe not so now. Well, this is something where the law takes into account motivation. Was it manslaughter? Was it murder? Al Stump here sets out to really do harm to Ty Cobb. He's not just making a mistake. He's not taking a quote from somebody who lies to him, say, about Cobb. There's really malicious intent here, well, or maybe just a profit motive here to try to make a dollar. You would hope that everybody would universally have the same reaction. I know maybe that's a little naive. I said when we last spoke in that interview that we're going to play that I like to be proven wrong about history. I don't like that I've been wrong. I always feel like I should keep a list of everybody I've ever told any historical quote. There's so many fake ones, and I will have quoted it at some point. And then I'll say, gosh, uh, you know, I'll find out that it was a fake one, and I'll feel bad about it. So I'm glad to know that I'm wrong about something if I've been given false information. You'd think everyone would feel that way, or we would hope hope everyone would feel that way. You'd mentioned to me that there is that ideological division about Ty Cobb, a terrible beauty, that I guess surprised you a little bit. So tell us how that shook out, because you're kind of the go-to guy now for people who want to talk about Ty Cobb when his name comes up and there's controversy. Yeah, this, this is one of the things that you're alluding to that surprised me the most after the book came out. I wasn't imagining there'd be any political divisions that it was a story about a ball player that I was, you know, was hoping people would pay a lot of attention to, but I couldn't imagine any falling one way politically or the other. But I quickly got the sense that people on the, on the right, in the right wing of politics, liked my message instinctively and liked the idea that I was describing a Ty Cobb who wasn't, there's something ironic here too, because the Cobb I'm, I was describing was a lot more liberal than the guy in the myth. The guy in the myth is like a Nazi, crazy, racist maniac. And I was saying, actually, no, he's not like that at all. He comes from abolitionists and everything that's on the record points in the other direction. He spoke out for the integration of baseball and everything else. And right wing people embrace that and like that. There's an irony there, but I can tell you they do. And part of it is they don't like the media, maybe some of them. And, and they think, you know, the media messed with the truth and messed up Cobb's legacy. And they also don't like Ken Burns, who in his movie reaffirmed these falsehoods about Ty Cobb and help preserve them, you know, for a long time. So that was funny. And, the, and the, uh, correspondingly, the left wing people sort of take it as if I'm saying that there wasn't as much racism as we thought and that it wasn't as virulent as we thought. No, I'm not saying that at all. And they resist the message a little bit more. All I'm saying is that Cobb, I'm moving one guy from one side of the ledger to the other. One man, I'm not saying that there wasn't a racism in, in uh, baseball. Far from it. There was plenty, as we know. We don't have to argue about that. But it is funny how the argument fell along political lines. 
one example of this controversy over Ty Cobb is people resisted the Atlanta Braves moving Cobb's statue with them from Turner Field to their new home. And I know when I saw that article, I moved immediately to email it to you. And then I saw, oh, all right, you're already quoted in it. So it made me happy that you're now, as I said, the go-to person here. What's the fate of that statue? And when someone approaches you with that, a journalist who maybe only has a few minutes there on the phone, I wonder how you go about answering their inquiries if effectively without rehashing your entire book. <laughs> well, it can, it can be hard. One thing that made this particular story difficult is when the Atlanta Braves are they're moving from one stadium to the other and they took some of their statues and some of their stuff with them, but they didn't take the Ty Cobb statue with them. And they, they never quite said why. They gave a kind of a lot of sort of, it was kind of like politicians talking. You never quite understood why they were leaving it behind. But you, you were left if you had any sense to believe that they sort of thought he was a tainted player because of the myths and the myths about him being racist, probably in particular, caused them to say, let's just leave that statue there, even though it had been there for quite a while, for decades. So they took it and the the statue, to answer your question, the statue has now very recently been brought to Cobb's hometown in Royston, Georgia, in northern Georgia in the Hill Country, where they made a big pitch to local people, a great Cobb buff and historian named Wesley Fricks part of the effort. And Julie Ridgway, there's a Ty Cobb museum in Royston, and they're very proud of him there. And now they're going to have a great, great big statue of him. It's a great statue. And there's also a great statue of Cobb, of course, in Detroit at the stadium there. And they're proud enough to build a statue, but they're still sort of a little shy about talking about Cobb too much. It's a, it's a curious situation. It's a cool statue, too. It's not just him standing there with a bat. It's kind of an action statue, which you don't see a lot. And it does look to me anyway as not a massive baseball stats or technique guy. He is not spiking the guy. It's not even he's just sort of cleanly uh, sliding into the plate. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. And in fact, you know, virtually all the pictures you'll find uh, photographs of Ty Cobb. He's got his feet down on the ground. He had nine different styles of slides and virtually all of them involved eluding the tag and getting around the player, not colliding with the player. So the myths about Ty Cobb sliding into people and all the guys he played with to a man reaffirm this, that he was not a vicious spiker and a dirty player. That's the one myth that predated his death, that he had to live with all his life, that he did that. It started by some out-of-town writers, and because he was a fierce player and an unpredictable player, it kind of sort of seemed to blend with that. And people loved it and loved to tell the story and chuckle about it. But it made him very sad. And it caused him to want to write a book towards the end of his life and correct the myths about him being a dirty player. And that led him to meet Al Stump. And the story goes on from there. So it was an important myth in his life, but it was a total myth, an untrue myth. Not all myths are untrue, but this one was untrue. The myth about cops spiking people. And you said he would still later in his life pull up his pant leg and show you that he got hit as (laughs) worse than he maybe uh, ever meted it out, that part of the game. And he also wanted them to dull spikes. He wanted them to require players to dull them. But it was just sort of this scary, you described it as medieval, almost torture device that uh, unfortunately got attached to him as a myth. Right. People were fascinated by spikes in those days, and they loved to talk about them. And today we take them for granted, but the people watching the ball games in, in the 1905 when Cobb came up, you know, didn't grow up playing little league baseball or scholastic baseball, and they didn't wear spikes. They didn't know what those things were, and they were fascinated by them, a little too fascinated, I think. 
I want to close with reference back to Cobb's maligned record on race. We will be kicking off Black History Month a few days after we upload this episode. So what can we remember about Ty Cobb's legacy as we look back on the long struggle for equality in America? And as we look ahead, what can we get as inspiration from him and hopefully learn from that as a white man born in the South, coming from abolitionists, sort of picking up that torch? What should we be thinking about if we do spare a few minutes for people like Ty Cobb here in Black History Month? Well, I think we should be thinking about the Martin Luther King line about judging people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin and not where they were born and when they were born. You know, people said Cobb was born in 1886 in rural Georgia. How could he not be racist? Well, as we said before, you know, he came from a long line of abolitionists. He never said anything about race on the record. I kept hearing while I was doing this research and after since the book came out, even about how he was an avowed racist. And I said, well, where did he make this vow? When did, what did he say? What did he say? Mm-hmm. He never said anything about race because no one asked him. It was just assumed that was part of the sad thing. It was assumed for so long that the American leagues was a white only situation. When Jackie Robinson came along in 1947, Cobb spoke out in favor of it. And a few years later, when Cobb was asked about the integration of the Texas League, which finally got around to it in 1952 to integrating their league, he said the Negro should be accepted wholeheartedly and not grudgingly. The Negro has the right to play professional baseball, and who's to say he has not? I love that quote. I'll keep repeating it. I love it because it has that Ty Cobb chippiness to it, that sort of anger. And I love that it says wholeheartedly and not grudgingly. This was not a man scuffing his foot and looking down and saying, yeah, well, I guess we should, you know, blah, blah, blah. He was taking a stand and he he spoke out in his way and said the right thing. Didn't just say the right thing, but said a good thing. So I say, God bless Ty Cobb. He wasn't a victim of where he grew up and we shouldn't make him one. Well, Charles Learson, I hope we all take that example and speak up when it's our time. Maybe we don't think we have Ty Cobb's platform. Maybe we don't think we'll ever have his fame or his skill at the game or his work ethic. But it really is inspiring. Your book inspired me. That's why I wanted to have you back on to update us on the amazing afterlife of Ty Cobb's reputation. The sign of a good book for me is one that sticks in my mind for a month, but the sign of a great one is I keep casting back to it forever. The way I do with Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, makes me want to be a better person and certainly better at my job. I wish you continued success with the book, and I look forward to following its journey at Charles Learson with you on Twitter and at charleslearson.com. Well, thanks so much, Dean. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Now for our listeners... Here's our original September 2015 chat about Ty Cobb, a terrible beauty. One point of order, when we last spoke, Charles and I made mention of Carrie Nation, but I never really explained who she was. The alcohol prohibition advocate is a controversial figure, and if you said to somebody who criticized your drinking, who are you, Carrie Nation, that implied that they were a moralizing member of the temperance movement. And it may have been the source of Cobb's run-in with that groundskeeper that Charles uncovered in the course of his research. Okay, now that we have that reference squared away, and we've updated you on the life the book has taken on since publication a bit, here's our original conversation with Charles Learson on Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. I'm in the studio with Charles Learson, author of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. Thank you for pitching a few innings with us here on the History Author Show. My pleasure, Dean. 
I really enjoyed this book, not just for what it did for Ty Cobb, but just for the craft of it as a journalist. I've heard you speak before about being a journalist and how you need to really immerse yourself in a subject to uncover some of these things that might just go over somebody's head. And there was one thing about Carrie Nation. Nobody knew why this groundskeeper who happened to be African-American and Cobb had a fight. Well, they, the groundskeeper came up to him by some people's accounts and said, hi, Carrie. And no one has ever under that was quoted in the newspapers of the day. And no one has ever understood that, what, what he meant. And it's been sort of noted, but never interpreted. And you dug that up and figured out that it was Carrie Nation. I kind of stepped on your punchline. <laughs> <laughs> well, it may well have been. And if it was, it was because there was a, a thing you did in those days with a drinker. You know, if you told them to stop with a drinker, might say to you, so who are you, Carrie Nation? Like telling me to stop drinking. And Cobb may have done that on another occasion with him. And now he was, he was sort of reminding Cobb of that. There was also evidence in the, in the clips in that case that the man had a, had a drinking problem. Yeah. And they'd had a run in before just over how he was kind of doing his job and keeping the field. And so it wasn't this overt racism, which is one of the things I think you pick out right in the book, which is everybody wanted that story so much. And I'm reading the book and I get to the point and you say, you can almost read the frustration with people saying, well, you were born in Georgia in 1866, right? How can you not be horribly racist? Like they wanted to cast him as that so much. And there was just so much misreporting. And I'll get into some of the things that I wrote down already, but I wanted to start off by saying people shouldn't feel personal that they've been duped. I think sometimes when you read a book like this, it's easy for us all to say, well, I believe this. And so I don't want to feel like I've been made to be a fool. But I enjoyed finding out that I was wrong. I always enjoy that in history because it's not my fault that I was misinformed. I didn't watch Ty Cobb play. I don't know what he was like. But if someone like you can go through and look at the reporting, you can debunk some things and we want to get the right story. And so I want to ask you if you find that. Do you find people clinging to this false image of, of Ty Cobb just because they love to have him to hate? Yeah, the short answer is yes, I do. I I don't find it, and this is going to sound self-serving, but I don't find too many people who've read the book who then still cling to the image because I've I've assembled a lot of information. I give the sources and the footnotes, and so it's hard to counter that. But there's certainly this cherishing of the myth of Ty Cobb as a monster that I found and very early in my in the publicity and all the when I when word first got out that there was a book that painted a different picture of Ty Cobb. Boy, did I hear it on social media or see people scoffing at me or scoffing at the very idea of that. And I understand why, because it's something people have heard all their life, and very often they, they got that wisdom from their daddy, their father. You know, we hear a lot of baseball wisdom and stories, typically. Of course, it might, might have been their mom, too. But So you get it from your parents, and it's kind of sacred information. You believe it your whole life. I believed it when I started out. I, I started from a position of believing the myths, and I thought that I was going to go into this and find fresh evidence of Cobb being a monster, better, newer, unheard of examples, and that's what I would do. That's what I would bring to the project. It took me about it took me about half a day, actually, of standard reporting to realize that something was wrong with that myth and that and then it started to fall apart. Yeah, because I wanted to mention you didn't go into this looking to apologize for him or cover it up. You went in trying to write about him, and you really ended up writing about the legend, which is something you say in the book. It's really a book about this story, this myth that grew up around him that was so much more compelling than the real man. I wrote down some of the things about him being cultured, a shrewd investor, 
shy with public speaking, you know, not somebody who's putting himself out there all the time, that he was uneasy with his fame, but he was writing back to every single kid who wrote him, which is incredible when you think of how many people were writing him. He would write back with that trademark green ink, and you have a picture in the book of him surrounded by kids. He's clearly in his glory. You could see the body language of him that he's he's not put upon by these kids. He's enjoying it, and I think those are all things that you're blown away, even if you're just a casual observer of the Ty Cobb movie or of the biographies that have come up around him because people held on to that for so long. And I wanted to ask you about how that affected you. Like, how many of these eureka moments did you have? Because I'm riding along on the A train and I'm going, oh, come on. Like, he has, he has a bat boy that he, you know, that he treats better than everyone. He's smuggling this black bat boy in to ride in his car and bringing him into his whites only hotel and giving him a job in the summer. And it's incredible. Well, an amazing number of the myths, the, the, the facts that counter the myths are exactly 180 degrees from the myth. Ty Cobb actually was enlightened when it came to race on the subject of spikes. He once wrote the president of the American League asking him to issue an order that all players dull their spikes. I mean, in so many instances, he's exactly 180 degrees from where the myth is. You know, that's what I found. The other thing that's interesting, that one of the, I don't know if it was a eureka moment, but what a realization came to me. One thing I learned, and that's important to keep in mind as you read the story of Ty Cobb, is that he was the first one of the, these superstars. He came in, up into the American League in 1905. Baseball is a big-time enterprise. It was pretty primitive then. The two leagues, uh, that system as we know it now, had only been around for four years at that point. Baseball was very popular, but it was becoming the big thing it is it is now. And he was a, the first, certainly of those more sophisticated guys who was a superstar and how to play the role, how to figure out what it meant to be a celebrity, how, how much to interact with the crowd, how much to shrug off, how much to let roll off his back, you know, how much he owed kids. I mean, that's still a thing that's debated. How much do athletes owe us, you know, and how much uh, do they have to play the role of hero? How much are they obligated to do that? Well, when Cobb was coming up, that was a brand new, fresh argument. The men that came up in the, that were sitting in the stands, the grown men watching him, the world they came up in did not have professional athletics as we know it now, so that the whole culture was different. Yeah, celebrity itself was very new, you mentioned in the book. I'm sure we had political heroes. Obviously, we had Lincoln. We had you know, William McKinley was uh, the most popular president since Lincoln, since he's been in the news lately. It was an incredible thing to be popular and just for playing a game, really. It, people say that today derisively, but for him, that wasn't what he set out to do. He set out just to be the best, it seems, at what he did. And there's this item about being a mental hazard that you mentioned in the book that he talked about and explain that and how maybe that fed a little bit of this myth about him or illusion that he was a standoffish kind of a jerk, really. Yeah, well, it didn't make him so popular. He did have a philosophy. He had a very well-thought-out approach to baseball, which in itself was new. A lot of the guys, there were a lot of sophisticated, intelligent guys playing, even college-educated guys playing with Cobb, but there were also a lot of guys who were kind of like treated the sport as if they were carnies. They were just traveling around, getting drunk every day. They were going to do this for a while until they had to go out and, and get another job. So Cobb had this more scientific approach to the game. He said, this is a worthy enterprise, this game. Let me figure out how to play it. Let me come up with a system. Let me figure out I want to excel at this. And one thing he developed with this idea of being a mental hazard, as you say, for the opposition. It was a phrase 
He repeated many times in interviews during his career. And what he simply meant by that was that he would, he would be a disruptive force, usually on the base paths, even in the batter's box. By the way he operated, he would, he would mess with the other guy's mind. Now, you know, this we take now for granted in sports and we, we applaud it. But early in the early 20th century, it was kind of at odds with 19th century ideas of sportsmanship. You weren't supposed to be a mental hazard. You were supposed to be polite to your opponent. The president of Harvard didn't like football because he thought the football players should not look for a hole <laughs> yeah, in the line. That. They should run in a gentlemanly fashion into the scrum. And they, he didn't like baseball because he thought curveballs were kind of overly tricky and immoral in a, in a weird kind of way. So Cobb had this idea of being a mental hazard, a disruptive force on the base paths, which he was. He made other people look bad sometimes, and that didn't help his popularity. And that was his territory, the baseline. And I looked, as I'm learning and reading the book, Ty Cobb, Terrible Beauty, I'm seeing, okay, looking at the pictures the first time of him playing, it just looks like a baseball picture. Then I look again, look a little closer, and I see, oh, that guy is sliding away. There's that one picture where they're saying that he's sliding into him. You can see the dirt, his knees pushing it. And then the one, there's the one with that catcher. And you mentioned in the caption that even though they fought after, the catcher said, you know, I was in front of the plate and I look at it with the bag, I guess, in those days. And I look at the picture and I said, yeah, he was. He's in his real estate. And and they tell him slide feet first because you're going to break your head open going head first. So mm-hmm. everybody slides that way. Now, as you said, look, but looking back, he was really a trailblazer, literally. Well, he had nine different kinds of slides, which, which was his thing in itself, that he counted the different kinds of slides he had. And, you know, virtually all of them were about being elusive and giving the infielder or the catcher as little to touch and tag as possible. So he really wasn't about barreling into you and trying to hurt you. I mean, that would be a psychopath, and he wasn't that. On the other hand, he believed in the right of way that baseball players acknowledged that there was this patch in front of the base, and if you wanted to stick your hand or foot there – you did that, as they said in those days, on your watch. That was on your watch. So if you wanted to stick your hand, he had the right away there, and he might come in to you. Now, Cobb also liked, especially in his older days, to uh, when he was retired, to roll up his pants leg and show you the scars on his own leg that he got from the infielders and catchers coming down on him with their spikes, which was, if he was in that same spot, they that was perfectly legal to do. They They gave as good as they got, and that's the way the game was played in those days. Another catcher tells the story of, Cobb sliding at home, he wallops him in the kidneys with the tag, and Cobb actually passes out for a few seconds. But when he gets up, he dusts himself off, doesn't say anything to the catcher, trots back to the dugout. That was dead ball era baseball, and Cobb was not out of line and, in fact, was more elusive than the average guy. That little snapshot you gave there of the Harvard line saying run directly into each other, that's probably one reason back in those days you're talking the 1905, talking in that era – they would lose a college player once a year. A guy would die out there mm-hmm. on the field. And part of it was, we hear it today, we take it for granted about how if you're not conditioned as a player, you're going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And as I'm reading this book and about the mechanics of it with Ty Cobb, he really helped to make it into something. It wasn't just you running around there, harem scarum. He started his career out that way. And you described it running everywhere, trying to get into every play. But he really finessed it. And I wanted to ask you... I guess the basic question about today, if somebody wants to get an idea because you can't go to YouTube and see Ty Cobb play, there's only, what, a few seconds of video of him, right? Mm -hmm. Who do you look at and see kind of applies that whole mental, physical philosophy to the game today, if anybody? Well, there are a few guys that come to mind. 
D. Gordon from the Florida Marlins, the Miami Marlins, plays that way. Jose Altuve on the on Houston plays that way. If you're old enough, you may remember Willie Mays. Jose Reyes is another guy in his heyday. He's slowing down a little now. But these guys were disruptive forces. I heard a quote from Cole Hamels, the pitcher, saying, you know, that when D. Gordon is on base, he has to worry about two people. Obviously, he means the base runner and the batter, but not enough base runners think that way. But that's what Cobb was. That was part of being a mental hazard, what he wanted. He always wanted to have part of your mind thinking about him. Was he going to do something crazy even? Or And he often did things that were very low percentage things on the base path. Sometime if the Tigers in a late inning were either far ahead or far behind, he'd do something really outrageous. He'd run at a really unstrategic time just to plant a seed in the mind of the opposition that Cobb was liable to do anything at any time and to keep them off balance that way. As I say in the book, if there was a statistic for uh, forced throws, errors made by forced throws, he'd have another record. You know, mm-hmm. he, he caused people to throw the ball crazy. He caused people to miss the ball and not catch it right. And guys would then throw their glove down in disgust or throw it up in the air. And sometimes they'd get thrown out of the game for doing that on top of it. So, And the crowd would go wild. So he was a, a crowd-pleasing player in his day. And I mentioned that I like to go to a game and watch it, mentioned in the intro. And I don't read a lot of baseball books, but I like to read a biography of anybody. I'm a fan of biographies. And as I was reading Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, I started to just think about how he felt as this man who was really soft, like I, I wrote this line, I was very proud of myself. I wrote that the Georgia peach bruised easily. Eh, not yeah. bad. I'm sure it's been said <laughs> a million times. But anyway, came to me as new because I don't read much about yeah. baseball. But I think it's a book any of us would want to have written about us if we had made that mistake. And I wondered if you ever thought about putting it aside just because the idea was so contrary to what everybody loved. Sometimes people see a myth and they say, well, leave it alone. Let people have their myth. Let them have their monster. So did it ever occur to you just to not even try to fight this giant wave of movies and books and articles painting him as a monster? No, that didn't occur to me. I'm a journalist by trade. So I, you know, and I I didn't go into this to set the record straight. As I say, I thought, I was in the wrong camp when I started and I had to dis- discover this. It's true that people say when the legend beats the facts, you know, print the legend, that line from the man who shot Liberty Valance, that's very true and there's a great appeal to it. And I guess I, I wondered if more people would, would be delighted to hear a different and true story or if they would cling to their myth. I think a more commercial idea, if I was just thinking that would, would have been to enhance the myth and go with the monster story, you know, because people love this myth of Cobb as the monster. And that's why it exists. And that's why it continues. And that's why somewhere now on social media, someone is is embroidering on it, or maybe more than one person. Yeah. And it all goes back to 1961. After Cobb died, the monster myth really took off. And flourished and blossomed. And it all, it all traces back to this one hack sports writer named Al Stump who started this snowball rolling that, as I say, sometimes in interviews turned into an avalanche of lies. That's the basis of that movie with Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, that's based it? on the work of Al Stump. Yeah. Ty Cobb's grandson is in that. You mentioned, I think his granddaughter was at one of the events you spoke at, right? Was she at Cooperstown? Yeah. And that's a real test case. You would think if anybody ever would want to get the name cleared, it would be somebody who hears, oh gosh, you're Ty Cobb's granddaughter. And people are so in your face that in a way it's what you talked about with celebrity where people will just tell you right to your face if they think you're a celebrity relative or 
politician or whatever is a horrible person. Like, what do you find when you speak at a place like Detroit, Georgia, as I said, Cooperstown? What's the transition? What's the change in the audience? Do they come in hostile maybe? And at the end, are they shocked? What's the reaction? Well, at a speaking engagement, it's more of a self-selecting group. I mean, I think it's people who are open to the idea, maybe who've read the book. And on social media, it's more of a people who are entrenched and haven't thought about it and people who are likely to make the mistake of the fact that they've heard something a thousand times is not like they've heard a thousand pieces of evidence about it. In fact, those things that they've heard may none of those qualify as evidence. They're just stuff that people say. The Cobb family has been very hurt by the myth, you know, but they didn't have too much sort of a podium to to fight back from. You know, the one thing that Cindy Cobb, his granddaughter, who I was at Cooperstown with, told me she was especially hurtful was this myth that only three players from baseball showed up at his funeral. That You know, that's repeated over and over. Uh, when Cobb died in 1961, his family asked no one to come from baseball. It was a private service. They just said it was for family only. And in fact, several ball players showed up anyway, and then some others were invited as pallbearers and special guests. But the church was packed when Cobb was buried. The roads were lined with thousands of people to say goodbye to him. And the newspapers across America and radio and television were ablaze with eulogies. I mean, um, it's almost funny. You don't know whether to laugh or cry. The New York Times that wrote it had an editorial, not in the sports page, but on its editorial page, summing up his career when he died and eulogizing him on, on an editorial page. He was not known as a racist. He was not known as a monstrous person then. All of Al Stump's work was in the future, some of it just a few months down the road when he would publish an article in True Magazine that depicted Cobb as a crazy, wild, gun-toting drunk. And all that was to come. When Cobb died in 1961, he was recognized as a hero. And that's one of the things that you also mentioned in the book about this perception and people reporting a misperception, the first person that gets to an accident site, say, or whatever it is. And that thing about the funeral, sure, you see, oh, they didn't go. That's it. They, he must have been a horrible guy. Nobody came. Look, they don't bother to look back and see that this was a request to the family. And you had another great piece of journalism. Again, just so much respect for it that you go and you say, you know how I know these bellboy and uh, and what the night watchman the hotel detective you know i know that they're not likely at all to have been black and there was no racial component is in the article they don't say it because there was always that qualifier and as somebody who reads a lot of news articles just raw from that era that's so true you wouldn't say uh man stabs woman if there was a racial component you would heck they don't do it much today right denzel washington when he accepted his oscar afterwards the reporter asked him when do you think an article will be written that just says actor wins Oscar, not black actor wins it? And Denzel Washington said to him, you write it tomorrow. Right. <laughs> Your reporters go do it, right? In the early 20th century, race was a sensational item. It added a dose of little sensationalism to every story. So if you could say Negro does this or Negro is killed, it added a little spice to the story and it was never left out. We're talking about an issue here in which a man named Charles Alexander wrote a biography in the 80s that reported that Cobb 
fought with uh, several people, had several um, uh, important fights in his career with people who were black. And it turns out, I found, in going back to the historical record, those people were white. They weren't black. So we have to move them to the other side of the ledger. So Cobb's record regarding uh, African-American people begins to, to shift dramatically when you do that. The papers of the day never never overlook that. And apart from that, I was actually able, in most cases, to go back and find the census reports that, that said these people were white. Cobb fought a lot. He had a lot of fist fights, even in an era when men generally resorted to their fists more than they do now. Uh, he was known as a fighter. There's no getting around that. He had a hair trigger temper and he could not suffer fools and had very high standards for himself and the people around him. And that lasted till the end of his life when he was a patient in the hospital when he was dying. He was very hard on the doctors and the nurses because he demanded excellence, but he didn't wave a gun around or have a gun in his hotel room or anything. And I talked to doctors who were in the room with him. Wow. So uh, I know that for a fact. That's all Al Stump manufactured nonsense, you know. Gosh, he's blowing it all up. Mm -hmm. You said about the era of men fighting. There's a great detail in there. And you see it sometimes in the old pictures, guys that have their faces smashed. You'd walk down the Bowery here in New York City, Skid Row at the time, and there were shops where you could go in, black eye shop, right? And just black go eye in. repair shops. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how common it was. Right. Think about how common auto repair shops are now because <laughs> everyone's hitting each other or opening right. their doors too hard. Like That was not excusable, but here we've gone from, oh gosh, he was on the warpath against any African-American he saw that he wanted to fight with to, well, he was fighting with uh, white people that were misidentified to, well, it was pretty common then. And for somebody with that hair trigger who was so intense, not that you forgive that, but it's such a completely different impression that you get as you read all the evidence in Ty Cobb, The Terrible Beauty. Right. Yeah. Well, as you said before, you know, people make assumptions because Ty Cobb was born in 1886 in, in rural Georgia. And they say, well, how could he not be racist? How could someone like that not be racist? And I understand their skepticism, but there's an answer to the question. The answer is that he descended from a long line of abolitionists, that his great-grandfather was a preacher who preached against slavery and got run out of town for it. His grandfather refused to fight in the Confederate Army because of the slavery issue. And uh, his father was a state senator who supported his black constituents and had a very short political career as a result of that. He was also an educator and a principal in school and a head of the uh, school system in his county. And he broke up lynch mobs, Cobb's father in town. So that's the background that Ty Cobb came from. And he, Cobb himself never said anything about racism. No one asked him. It wasn't the kind of thing you would ask a ball player. Until 1952, when he was asked about the integration of the Texas League, five years after Jackie Robinson broke the color line in the in the major leagues, and Cobb said that the Negro should be accepted into baseball wholeheartedly and not grudgingly. He said the Negro has the right to compete in professional sports, and who's to say he has not? And I love that. It's so Cobb. And who's to say he has not? In other words, you have to go through me if you're going to say, who are you to say you're better than someone else and can't and say they can't play? In the meantime, Cobb had attended Negro League games, sat in the dugout with the players, threw out the first ball at Negro League games. There's no evidence of Cobb being racist, really. And there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. But yet people love this thing. You know, why do they love it? Well, one reason I think it helps them feel superior to someone. You know, they can say this about someone. It's a way of saying, I'm not racist. I'm an enlightened person because I'm putting down someone who is a racist. Well, the problem with that is that Cobb wasn't. 
yeah, you can never be in the Hall of Fame or have all his records, but you can have this over him, I guess. Yes. If we, and it's not as if there's not. Nobody's perfect. Things we have over him. But when you read the historical record with your eye so carefully looking at the words and what is said, it's really forensics. And there was one statement after one of his fights. I, I believe it's the man who's paving the street tries to stop him, the black man. And he resented being told to stop by a black man that was working in front of him. You add a, italics there and you say, well, you quote Cobb and Cobb says, I would have treated any man the same way. He just took offense to him and he's right. like, he didn't like that he bugged him. And it was really, he wasn't the wrong. It was over nothing. Right. But he put that in sort of to, at least when we read into it, what's the reason to put that in? It's not because you're saying, well, how dare he step out of his place and all these things right. that were commonplace at the time. And instead you look at that and say, well, that, if anything, argues against it. Mm -hmm. And that's why you italicized it, because he's saying, hey, New York Times reporter or Detroit News, why don't you leave out all those things where you make it a racial issue? At least that's how I read it there. And it's certainly not him saying anything of the kind about it being a racially motivated incident. Right. And meanwhile, the paper that covered that fight, uh, the street fight with the street worker, had these horribly racist cartoons where they made the, you know, they had these monkey-like characters that were supposed to be the street repair guy. So the papers were, were so much more racist than Cobb ever was. It's sort of an amazing story. <laughs> it is definitely an amazing story. And it's time for the seventh inning stretch where I want to reintroduce you to everybody and say, I'm speaking with Charles Learson, author of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. You can find him at Charles Learson on Twitter or charleslearson.com. Remember, there's an H in there, L-E-E-R-H-S-E-N. The Boston Globe said in their review of the book, quote, if veteran sports writer Learson is correct about Cobb, and his book is assiduously researched and his points lucidly expressed, then A Terrible Beauty is not only the best work ever written on this American sports legend, it's a major reconsideration of a reputation unfairly maligned for decades. And as a journalist, again, you must have gotten worked up by that, and yet you managed to continue. And I just want to encourage people, hopefully they'll go out, they'll buy Ty Cobb A Terrible Beauty, they'll read it, and they'll learn that you can do this in all kinds of things. And I think today you often look at a story and you want to send it, say, to your producer, to your host, if you're a journalist. And I always say, well, what's the primary source on this? Where, where does it go back to? You have a lot of stories linking to each other now. The internet is so bad for that. And with this book, you went into such detail and dug through so many dusty records. This is a hundred years ago. And I wanted to ask you how much of that time did you spend just in libraries looking at the old film and the old pages and you gave up on some things because the records just don't exist and how many of those holes do you think you have that you'd you'd love to fill with Ty Cobb? Well, I spent, you know, almost four years working on the book and, you know, these days you don't actually often have to go to the library, but you bent over your computer. A lot of newspapers, uh, thankfully, are on uh, digitalized and online. But I did go back. You know, the, a bad book, in my opinion, is a bad history book is one that only cites other books. You know, like it, there's a formula for history writers. You know, you uh, read five books, write one, you know, or read 20 books and write write one. The problem with that is that how well sourced are the books you're reading from? Just because something is in print in a book doesn't mean it's true. So, uh, uh, baseball is a very well-covered sport and was in 1905 when Cobb came up and throughout his career. I mean, you had it's, it's so many games when the players are out there. There's in-between days when there's 
the sports writers are writing about the team. And there were more newspapers than, than there are today. So the, the sport is very well covered and there's a lot to be gleaned from. And, and granted, the papers can get things wrong and distort things too. So and you have to weigh that into your judgment as you go along. But there's so much more information and data and stories out there. And this is a story. This is not a polemic. It's a great American story. In the process of telling the story, I think the record gets set straight. But it's a story of this guy who came up to the, the major leagues from a low-level minor league team in, in Georgia, a disrespected minor league team in 1905. He was 18 years old. He came up a couple of weeks after his mother had shot and killed his father uh, by accident. We're still not sure, but his mother was under arrest at the time for manslaughter. And he came up in that environment to the major leagues. He played in the first major league game he ever saw. He sat on the bench and then played the next day in this big city environment, which he'd never been north of the Mason-Dixon line before. And he turned himself into arguably the greatest ball player of all time. And I think certainly the most exciting player of all time, which is something that gets lost in the, the fact that we don't have a, the film on him. So it's a, it's a great American story, and along the way, the record gets set straight. But I think it's a story you can get wrapped up in, and I did as I went along. And the idea of no TV and all these newspapers, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking when I'm reading Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, saying you're showing three or four different sometimes accounts of the same incident. And these reporters could easily make up stories, and they were incentivized to because, hey, they've got to compete with six other dailies in the mm -hmm. city or they have to really get their editor. Come on, give me something on Cobb. Give me because he becomes this big icon. And so they start to really compete with each other to sort of add a little bit of spice. And because there's no TV, there's no Twitter, the people watching the game in person might see something. But there's not this coverage where you could say, Let's watch that film again and again of him sliding into Baker there, the catcher, and see what what was he really aiming for. And nobody cares afterwards that, well, they fought. That's all you need to know. Cut cut and print it, right? right. Nobody cares that, oh, hey, afterwards, uh, Baker said, no, he was trying to kick the ball out of my hand. Because Spike, I thought of this reading, and I thought, that's a fun word, Spike, right? <laughs> I mean, you could call him a spiker. Like, who, honestly, who among us wouldn't want to kick somebody with some spikes, right? And <laughs> that gets in our way or annoys us. And so they, there was like this love hate rooting for him. And the press just, they were able to manufacture it out of whole cloth sometimes. Well, yeah, in the t early 20th century, there was a fascination with spikes. Cause as I said before, the uh, people in the stands hadn't come up with organized sports or even scholastic sports. People had no firsthand experience with spikes. They were these mysterious, partly medieval, partly sci-fi kind of weird things you strapped on your feet and they had little daggers on them and and people were fascinated and thought somebody's going to get killed you'd see it in the paper well of course no one has ever been killed by spikes you certainly can get injured but there was this over fascination with that that some of the you're right some of the out-of-town non-detroit newspaper man then stretched into the myth of ty Cobb being a dirty player but i could not find a player, a rival or a teammate, and even some of his teammates he didn't get along with, who backed up that myth. They said to a man that he was a clean player and he played within the rules and was, in fact, a hard guy to touch and a hard guy to make contact with, not a, not a slasher and a spiker. People just didn't know what spikes were for. They didn't understand the mechanics of the game the way that he did. And I like the fact that 
unlike Shoeless Joe Jackson, who is a natural and people would say he's a natural athlete. Ty Cobb didn't like to be called a natural athlete because he felt, I worked at this. And I'm sure you get it with the book. People will say, oh, well, you published a book before. You could, you were a sports writer. That must have been easy. You did it over a weekend. And you would say, hey, this took a lot of research. So for him, I think that that was a whole other level of just irritation that, hey, I'm trying to play this game professionally which no one's done before. And then to be maligned or misunderstood, that had to really get to him. And there was no outlet in those days, really. Because even if you go talk to the press, they they don't want to hear that. <laughs> yeah. He was an easy guy to irritate. And that certainly irritated him when he was called a natural as he was. People just meant it as a, like, oh, he's very good at this. But he, he didn't like that because he did put in a lot of hard work. And he did really resent being called a dirty player. And that's how he met Al Stump. He wanted to write a biography at the end of his life, setting the record straight. And the publisher set him up with Al Stump to be his ghostwriter. And Stump did a horrible job, spent very little time with Cobb, just worked mostly from clips and wouldn't let Cobb see the manuscript as it was in progress. When Cobb finally did see it, Cobb flipped out and tried to get the publication stopped. I'm the first one to report that. And because there's that book is out there and people respect it and see it as written in Cobb's voice. It's a first person account, but it's, it's something that Ty Cobb hated and thought was ridiculous. And it, it is ridiculous. It's written in like B movie dialogue and made up facts and a lot of mistakes in it. Cobb was was dying and didn't have the energy to stop its publication. And so it came out a couple of months after he died. And it wasn't a great success. And then a couple of months after that, Stump wrote his magazine article in which he said, well, this is the inside story of how I reported my book with Cobb. And this is how I found him. And Stump told millions of <laughs> packed more lies in that one magazine article than uh, you might think imaginable. And starting with the fact that the amount of time he spent with Cobb, he, he claimed he was with him for months on end. In fact, he was with him only for parts of several days. And, and that's where the exaggerations started. But people loved to hear that it was, it was a scandalous story. It was titillating. You have to remember, this is nine years before the book Ball 4, Jim Bouton's book, which exposed baseball players as, in some cases, womanizers and drinkers and wild men. No one had ever said that about a professional athlete in print before, believe it or not. Yeah, and, it does uh, seem impossible. Day, I, yeah, it hardly <laughs> seems possible. But uh, So people were shocked to hear this. And the other thing about the myth was that it seemed to fit with Cobb's personality of being fierce and very irritable, perfectionist, and the guy to fly off the handle and start throwing punches. So it, th that seemed to fit, so that made sense to people. And then they just took it and ran with it and started embroidering on it. Right. People just don't say he fought with black people. They say he killed black people. You had to track a lot of those rumors down, like things pop into people's heads. And that was right. one thing you searched around. Is there's no evidence that anyone was found dead. Or, well, they say he beat the man's face off, pistol whipped him, right? His face off. That's what some said. No, no one was killed anywhere. Right. And fights he had have been exaggerated into murders. You know, none of that happened. But yet you can go on the internet today and find someone to say, how can they keep Pete Rose out of the Hall of Fame? Ty Cobb is in the Hall of Fame and he killed three people. Well, he didn't, you know, but I mean, that's how the snowball keeps rolling. And the thing where we were talking about him being a natural or him not liking the term natural, part of the reason probably was he was so educated. And as you do here in the book on Ty Cobb, you watch the words that are used. And I'm sorry you heard that. And he said, well, I'm going to strictly interpret that. The word natural means something. It means mm -hmm. I woke up and I just started swinging a rolling pin or whatever. And I just came naturally to me. And he felt that wasn't the right word for it. And he was so well-educated. You have a picture in the book of him being given bundles of books 
And the caption says that it's instead of giving him trophies and such, they would give him or cigars or all the things they would give you back then. Like he was an educated man and he, I can't believe the feeling that he must have had reading a book that was supposed to be his book at the end of his life. That just must have been a terrible story. It backfired on him terribly because he thought that this would be his crowning, you know, explanation for his career. And the fact that, as I say in the book, he spent half of the first, it wouldn't be off to say that he spent half of his first half of his career sort of trying to convince people he was a little crazy on the base paths and the second half explaining that he was doing that on purpose as a strategy and a tactic. But he never was able, in some people's mind, he never was able to completely explain it, you know, uh, fully. You know, he was, he, he, we have to remember him as, as not a sourpuss though, because as, as like a great, he had some of what he did on the base path could make you laugh. You know, it was so funny the way he outwitted people. Someone once said that Ty Cobb getting a walk was more exciting than Babe Ruth hitting a home run because when Ruth hit a home run, yeah, it was exciting, but it was over in an, in a flash with Cobb trotting down to first base was just the beginning of it. I mean, here's a guy who stole second, third and home on three consecutive pitches. A guy who once hit an inside the park home run on a tap back to the pitcher's mound and he didn't even slide on that play so i mean you know you never knew what was going to happen when cobb came to the plate and that's what packed the stands he was the biggest draw in baseball and he got an award in chicago as the most beloved out of town player you 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 love to boo him because he was bad medicine for your home team if you were not from detroit but you couldn't help but admire the way he played and he volunteered for the First World War and not for just a show job, not for coaching the Army baseball team, volunteered for the Flame Men. And if you look back <laughs> at those photos, like, oh, my gosh, those guys lived maybe uh, 15 minutes. What was the average for those guys throwing grenades? They and- ran ahead of the infantry throwing bags of ga- flaming <laughs> gas yeah. at people. You know, it's, yeah. And that's what the he, yeah. a very typical Thai cop. And chemical, uh, chemical warfare. Right. Division. Yeah. Who yeah. volunteers for that? I mean, right. Amazing. Right. Well, this show kind of guy, I mean, at the end of his life, he's, he built a hospital in his hometown and he also started an education fund in Georgia for kids to send kids to college. He sent kids of every race and color and creed. No one was ever had to designate what color they were or what race they were. And he also helped privately without ever getting any credit for it. He helped a lot of his fellow ball players, some of whom weren't very friendly to him in his day. He helped them financially later in life. And he was a good grandfather to his grandkids. They remember him as uh, the kindly old grandpa, and so it really hurts them to see the, the lies and hear the lies that are told about him. You see that picture of him in the book with Joe DiMaggio, and he's just smiling. I mean, he's got sort of the elderly Irish face, a little bit, little bit like maybe uh, Coach Coughlin of the New York Giants. Right. He just sort of has that just lit up, happy guy, black right. and white, obviously, but. I thought another thing about his World War Two, World War One, rather service. The reason why you haven't heard any maybe great war exploit stories on Ty Cobb is because you write in the book the war ended. Armistice came before he got to squirt any flaming gasoline. I believe he wrote it as on the Hun <laughs> on so, clean Huns. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to mention, even if you're not a baseball fan, Ty Cobb a Terrible Beauty it really was funny. There's funny things in it too. It's not just trying to debunk a bunch of things, which I'm sure you could have fallen into. It was good. It's edited down to there's still a story in the book and things about guys like Babe Ruth. When they when he steps into a story, the 
hey, I recognize that guy. I want to read about him. And he had a relationship, too, with Ty Cobb that isn't at all what people think. When that thing about the funerals, he, he had a relationship with all these guys and was not hated and reviled, was he? By yeah, no, a guy named Lou Brissy, who was a pitcher who I interviewed, who since passed away since I interviewed him. Uh, I had lunch with him in, in Georgia, very gracious man, and was a war hero, too, in World War II. He was from the generation after Cobb, but he knew Cobb. And he said, look, you have to understand that Cobb was on another plane from most guys. And he was like a Jeter, an A-Rod, a Mike Trout, whatever you want to say, a superstar, Willie Mays. And let's remember, let's put ourselves back in the early 20th century frame of mind where the, the relationships on a team, those things hadn't been worked out yet. The etiquette of how to act even in the ballpark, even for fans, was still a work in progress. Guys weren't used to being on a team. They didn't realize that some guys would sort themselves out and be superstars. They'd be paid more. They'd get endorsements. They'd be recognized more. They'd be more popular. And until you came to terms with that, and Cobb was, the, in a way, you could say the first superstar. You either came to terms with that as a teammate of his or you were very resentful all the time. So most guys, after a while, got the gist of it. Okay, this guy's batting 377, 402. You know, he's going to be a star. He's going to be on another plane and I'm not. But for a while, there was a lot of resistance to that idea of him getting special treatment. The Tigers loved him, treated him very, very specially, and that probably fueled some player resentment, too. I wanted to mention one other movie thing that's wrong, and that's in Field of Dreams, where the shoeless Joe Jackson character says of Cobb, no one liked that son of a bitch. This is also an uh, apocryphal, in case you thought a movie about dead baseball players coming back as a documentary, everybody. That was not the case either. I wanted to thank you so much. I have one last pitch to throw at you, and that is, outside of reading Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, how can people help? to get the facts right about Ty Cobb. One thing they could do, I think social media offers the chance. If, if you're a baseball fan and you're on certain sites or on certain Facebook pages or tweeting about baseball and you have friends and people that, that you follow that do, you're going to encounter people that are saying wrong, stupid, dumb, ignorant things about Ty Cobb. And I think on a case-by-case basis, I know I have trouble resisting myself sometimes, and I feel I should because I'm, I wrote a book about him. But I think you can correct the facts when people say, Here's someone who murdered people and he's in the Hall of Fame. I, maybe on a case by case basis, you can step in and say this. You know, here's someone who's the worst racist. When you hear someone say an avowed racist, you ask them what that means exactly. You know, do you take a vow to be a racist? And where did you do this that was recorded? And who recorded it? And where's the quote? And where's the, where's your proof of this? People can provide the proof, then that's one thing. But if they can't, then they should shut up. And so I think social media allows us to just step in sometimes and set people right. Maybe I'm just too Pollyannish about this, but on a case-by-case basis, what the book doesn't do, maybe you know the rest of us can do. Well, I hope so. I think those things can hit a critical mass, and where it becomes fighting back against this myth is something that people want to do, and they do automatically and reflexively. So Charles Learson, again, the author of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, The Georgia Peach, is no longer with us, but as I said, he's a man who bruised easily. He despised this false reputation as a dirty player. He didn't earn it. And you have the facts. There's an index in the book. Look it up if you still want to cling to that. And I guess we can all turn our anger to maybe somebody who deserves it more fittingly. I know I enjoyed watching you play the game of good journalism and reporter. And I want to thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Dean. It was a pleasure. 
That's our original September 2015 interview with Charles Learson about his work to give baseball back arguably its greatest player ever. The book is Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And the book is now available in paperback, by the way. We hope you will click through historyauthor.com to go to Amazon because amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional charge in your shopping cart. It helps keep us in baseball equipment, I guess you could say. I want to thank Charles Learson for joining me to do a follow-up interview about the life his redemptive book has taken on after publication. Ty Cobb at Turbo Beauty is the sort of work that any one of us would want to have written about us if we had been so unfairly maligned by history. And I hope it'll inspire everybody to cast a critical eye on whatever we read. Please remember to visit our guest at charleslearson.com. That last name is L-E-E-R-H-S-E-N. And follow him on Twitter at Charles Learson. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. Well, that's it for this episode of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next week for another trip into the past right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. That's it for this week's Baseball Hall of Fame installment of the History Author Show. So, until next Monday morning, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We'll leave you with a 1908 Edison Cylinder recording of Edward Meeker singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Why don't care if I never